Hey friends, I'm super excited for this episode right here. We have Marty Solomon from the Bama Podcast on our show today. Now, Marty is the president of Impact Campus Ministries, and straight up, he's a legit Bible scholar. No exaggeration. This episode has the potential to change your life and the way you view the world around you. But if it doesn't, well, I said it has a potential. Can't blame me for that. Anyway, I apologize in advance for my jacked up audio, but I promise you, it doesn't get in the way. All right, let's get down to business. Woo! Yo, so I had this rule, right? Like, don't try anything new with technology uh, the day of a recording. And I obviously just, I ignored that today. And, uh, you know, now I'm paying for it. It's all right. You got, it's the spice of life. Um, (laughs) I am recording locally as well. So I'll send you, if it does any good for your your editing, I know Brent likes a cleaner recording. So I'll send a Dropbox link with a local recording that I have in a WAV file. So this is podcast expertise right here. (laughs) Brent has made me sound smarter than I am. Yeah, so Marty, yo, thank you so much for joining the In Search of Hope podcast. Um, for those who do not, know, those who don't know who Marty Solomon is, he's the uh, one of the leaders. Is it Impact Ministries, Campus Ministries? Impact Campus Ministries. Yep. Yeah, and he's uh, the one of the, I guess, the creator of the Bama podcast with Brent Billings, where they really break down the Bible in a way that a lot of us Westerners have never heard or understood it. And it can be, it it can be super challenging at times. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of my passion behind starting the whole ministry that I started was we get used to bad readings of the Bible. And when we, and when we do that, people get hurt. Uh, Like it, it, it really becomes a pretty serious thing. And so I just wanted to, add a voice into that conversation that could keep us maybe more, I don't know if it's intellectually honest, but just make it a more rounded, well, uh, a, a more robust conversation about mm. what the Bible is and what it's saying. I know that you're, uh, you're, you're making a push to, uh, to, to write a book soon. So super looking forward to that. I think this, this, uh, this podcast is going to help kind of generate more eyes on you. That's good. I would love it. I, we got to get a publisher to think it's worth uh, paying me to write first. And then if we can do that, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. So, okay. So let's go. I want to approach the idea of looking at this Bible as I'm going to be the layman. I don't want to say devil's advocate, but that's the phrase that people understand. Um, so say I'm a guy off the street, you know, when I talk to a lot of my, fr- you know, some friends of mine about the Bible, a lot of times, I think we have to start by saying we have to trust the story, you know, to, to bite a line from you. But we have to trust the story. But we're asking people to trust the story. But why should they trust the story? Right. And I was just actually reading about this this morning. There's this fundamental thing inside of all of us. And I'm not talking about the typical Christian cliche things. Those may or may not be true. Um, I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about fear and insecurity, mm. which lies at the root of all, even the biggest narcissist. And I know because I'm a recovering narcissist. So uh, I know really after a lot of good therapy, my narcissism is simply a cover for deep-seated insecurity. 
Um, some of us wear our insecurity on our sleeve. Um, it's only a layer or two underneath. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Some of us bury our insecurities mm-hmm. under a whole lot of um, what looks like confidence or swagger or whatever it might be. But the root of the human condition is fear. Fear that I'm not enough. Fear that I'm not going to have enough. Fear that and we all know what that is like. Now, we may not be ready to talk about it. If I'm sitting next to devil's advocate on the plane next week, you know, that may not be a conversation that he or she wants to have. And that's, mm. I totally get that. But you you get us around a campfire. You put us in close enough relationship. You give us the right circumstances. And every single one of us knows what fear is, what it tastes like, and how dangerous it is. If If you just tease it out a little bit. We know that we've made some of the dumbest mistakes of our life, and we've hurt some people that we love the most because of our fears and our insecurities. And that's what I think the biblical narrative is all about. Like somewhere it got hijacked, and we made it all about theological terms, and we made it all about sin, and 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 what happens like in some heavenly courtroom, and and getting us to heaven when we die, and. And yet there's a, there's a, when you, when you start talking about Joe on the plane or, you know, devil's advocate walking down the street, that, 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 that's not, that's not the conversation that they, that they're interested in having. Mm. Um, but we all know what it's like to, to feel the hole that is inside of us, like yeah. to know what that emptiness is. We all wrestle with that on some level. Mm. And you think the Bible was created to fill that hole? At least to tell the compelling story of how to live uh, with that reality, I, I think, which is why I think the Bible starts the way that it does. Like the very first story off the bat is kind of a little scandalous. Like it, it's going to be <laughs> shocking because all the stories that they were used to, and I would argue all the stories that we're used to today, even the ones that have Jesus and blinking lights all over it, mm. um, the stories that we're used to are stories of like, okay, listen, it's all screwed up. You're screwed up. Here's all the things that you're not. Mm. Um, and this Bible starts with, man, it was good. Like God made a good earth and he loved it. He was like a kid in a candy store. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? It was good. Have you seen that? It was good. Have you seen that? It was good. This it was so good. When I got all done, it was very good. I left nothing out. There, and that, <laughs> so there's this, there's this, like, I dare you to see the world in a new way. Because all the narratives that they were used to, were largely polytheistic. Mm-hmm. It was about gods in conflict, us in conflict, or at least innocent bystanders of the gods in conflict. Like the world we knew was born in conflict, born out of conflict, surrounded in conflict, baked in conflict. And and the conflict, there's no doubt about it, but the but the Bible puts one story ahead of the conflict mm-hmm. and says underneath it all is goodness. And that's the most that's the most fundamental truth. Like if you peeled everything away and got rid of all the garbage that's been added in and tweaked and distorted, and if you got if you stripped it all down to its most true form, it would be pure, unadulterated goodness. Now the very next story is gonna be a story that says, and we all know what it's like to wrestle with that. Um, we all know what it's like to fail at that. It's not that Adam and Eve happened. It's that Adam and Eve happens every day, mm. um, which is part of how the Jews see that story. Um, 
if you get into a Jewish mind, they're not even going to understand the concept of a fall. Like they're they're pretty aware of Christian theology. They'll understand what you're talking about. But mm-hmm. if they really wanted to toy with you, they would be like, the what? Because <laughs> Jewish theology doesn't have a concept of the fall. There was oh. no fall in their mind. It's not that something happened and then centered the world. It's that we all sin when we don't trust in the fundamental goodness of creation. When we live out of that fear and insecurity, sin is the byproduct. And then we end up hurting people. We end up murdering brothers. We end up destroying civilizations. We'll build entire towers, and, and evil will, will, will civilize itself um, mm. and, and end up becoming an anti-story. But the fundamental truth of all of it, and we're included in that, the fundamental truth underneath all of us is goodness not 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 pure goodness mm. but essential goodness wow. and what christian what christian theology does is it always talks about how bad we are are we totally bad or just essentially bad but the one thing we all know for certain in the christian world is that we're bad <laughs> <laughs> and and judaism says well we're good but we have a lot of we have some we have some stuff we bring with wow. us and wow. some dangerous stuff um and so it's just a whole new way of of seeing things. And I think that's so when you say is the Bible given, I think the Bible is being told so that we have a compelling, captivating way to engage this narrative, to figure out who I am and where I fit in this narrative and what God's doing in, in my story now. My goodness. That Ooh, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot to sit with and just think about because now I'm thinking, okay, what's the difference between being bad and being essentially bad or being good or being essentially good? Right. No, I'm bad. Right. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's the great debate, right? In Western theology, we've always argued between uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, this mm. concept of, well, we're either totally depraved or not totally, but definitely depraved. <laughs> but there's always a conversation about being depraved. And mm-hmm. that's rooted in Augustinian theology. Like that was third ecumenical council. We decided that Augustinian theology and deprav- part of which was the depravity of man was central to Christian theology. And, and that's a Western, when the Eastern Orthodox Church broke off, the very first thing they did was they undid the Third Ecumenical Council. Um, they rejected Augustinian theology. That whole concept of being rooted in badness mm. is a Western construct that's always been rejected by more Eastern uh, trains of thought. And so, um, but that doesn't mean that we're totally good. It's not like the only other option is that we're pure. <laughs> it just means I am fundamentally, I am a part of God's good creation. I am made in his image, and I have this little thing, and not even it's not even little. It's a huge, significant thing in me. It is not me. It's not the truest form of me, but I have this beast nature in me. Mm. And see, that's and that's the whole that's the whole concept of the narrative for the Jews when it comes to the Adam and Eve story. Are they beasts or are they made in the image of God? And what does that mean? And that whole story keeps toying with. I mean, you get in there and and Adam is alone. And God's like, it's not good that Adam should be alone. I'll make a helper for him. And so the very next sentence should read, and so God put Adam in a deep sleep mm-hmm. and made Eve, but it's not. It's like the very next sentence is God parades all the animals in front of Adam. Mm-hmm. He has to name them all, and no suitable helper was found. So the one thing that we know, this story is about animals and humanity and how we are not animals. Mm-hmm. We are something else, and there's something fundamental 
to our identity that is not beast. And and really what the snake does, what the serpent does, who is very human-like in the story, mm-hmm. walking. Yeah. Well, not walking. Yeah, yeah, he is, because at the end of the story, God curses him to crawl on his belly, which means he must have been walking to begin with. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. talking. He's reasoning. He's relating. He's very, very human-like, and yet the story is very clear he is a beast. So what's the difference? And the temptation in Jewish thought is that he says, well, the tree is desirable, right? Well, I'll tell you what a beast does. When it's hungry, it eats. Mm-hmm. When it's We just got a new puppy in our house, which is not in the house right now, thank goodness, for recording. <laughs> um, but he, he, when he's hungry, he eats. My, yeah. my puppy never sits there and goes, you know what would be good for me today? Shed a few pounds, <laughs> practice some self-restraint. When it's mating season... We're going to get him fixed, but man, he would want to mate. There's no self-restraint. What is the part of us that makes us not humans? Well, we're like God in that we know when to stop. Mm. God knew when to stop creating. In the Noah story, God's going to know when to stop destroying. What it means to be human is that we, too, have this thing in us where we know when to say enough. And that's, that's, what, that's what makes us more than a beast. Now, the danger is, is that beast part. That fear, that insecurity is a very beast instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to act out of that in self-preservation and protection. And the story keeps telling us to rise above that, yeah. to be more like God and less like my dog. Like, yeah. Do, and, and we're always tempted into that, do I pursue these animal appetites or, oh. do, I, wow. or do I pursue this thing that, that, that God is calling me to become? So... Now you referenced, you know, we're referencing the book of Genesis, which even when talking to my barber, we sometimes go back and forth because a lot of times people will try to break down Genesis in like maybe a literal way of, okay, and on the first day, this happened, second day, this happened, third day, that happened. And then they even see in, um, in like the first book, the first, first chapter, there's like when they talk about creating light and then they create light again. So they, they, they kind of look at that as maybe like a fallacy in the book of Genesis alone, where you say, you see already in the beginning, I can't trust the story because it's not coherent. Can, uh, can you kind of speak to that? Yeah, that would be a problem if the Bible is playing by our rules in the Western mm-hmm. world, but the Bible's not because it's this Eastern book telling Eastern stories in an Eastern way, which should be instructive for us. When we see those things that are um, inconsistent, we should, like all the lights on our dashboard should be going off. Mm-hmm. So we have, we usually in the Western world have two options. Either one, you reject the story as inconsistent, or you kind of like explain all those things using apologetics. You kind of gloss over it. You, you give it some trite and you try to resolve it. The Eastern story is giving you indicators that what you're not, what you're reading is not that. Like it's mm. not a science lab report. It's not history as we would define it as Westerners. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that the story's not having that conversation. Maybe it is a young earth. Maybe it's 13.8 billion years old. The story's not dealing with that question. I have a friend that says, when you ask questions the Bible's not asking, you always get the wrong answer, which is a great example of what we typically talk about, like between you and your barber, we're always stuck in this wrong conversation. And no matter where we land, we get the wrong answer because that wasn't the conversation the Bible was having. So the thing the Bible is doing is it's telling these ancient stories not to talk about what happened or how it happened, but to talk about the why and the who um, the story of creation isn't about how creation happened, but who created it, um, about its essence, about why, like the story of Adam and Eve, is not 
that 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 sin happened, not how did sin enter the world, but why do we sin in the first place? It's asking bigger questions. And and what's sometimes helpful is to realize that that ancient Eastern world already had a bunch of stories that really the book of Genesis is hijacking and subverting for God's purposes. Mm. Inspired, completely inspired. I completely believe in the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures. Every last word of it. But it's taking these stories that everybody's used to, and it's Mm -hmm. going, you've been told this nursery rhyme since the day you were one years old. Mm -hmm. Let me put a new spin on it and tell it in a new way. They had a million flood narratives already in the ancient world. They had four or five dominant garden narratives where there's a woman in, in a garden with trees and serpents. There were already stories that existed when Genesis got. There's already a story in Egypt about a mound that rises up out of the watery, soupy chaos, and off the mound sits Amun-Ra, and he speaks Mm -hmm. into the chaos, let there be light, and there was light. Like These are all themes that when they hear it, it's not the first time they're going, oh, I've heard this story before. But then the author takes it and spins it and says, yeah, but God's not who you thought he was. Humanity's not what you thought we were. The world is not what you thought it was. Let me teach you to see it in a whole new way. So these are all stories that they're familiar with that are being turned on their head. Mm-hmm. And when you and when you see that, you go, oh, well, if I if I saw that in my world, well, I would know exactly what the author was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't be confused about whether or not it literally, you know, happened. If somebody made a play off of um, I'm trying to think of a uh, if somebody made a play off the national anthem. Mm-hmm. Like I would realize what they were doing. I, mm-hmm. I I wouldn't go like, oh, wait a minute. So is there was there another anthem or is, is that <laughs> historical? I would realize what they were doing was engaging in subversive narrative to rewrite my understanding. Now I may totally disagree with it, but that's what the Bible is doing. It's inviting you to see the world. It's setting the stage for this guy named Avram. Mm who's going to be wildly different than the world around him. But I need to know what that world is like, who God is, what's going on, so that when I meet Avram, I go, whoa. Yeah. I mean, this guy, he's really swimming against the current. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the story wants you when it introduces you to the main characters. Okay. So why then the Bible, right? Why, well, the Bible as we know it, but... Like when Genesis was written, you have all these other ancient stories, ancient, maybe even, I don't know if they were in text form, but, you know, the uh, Sumerians were there, the Egyptians were there, you know, everyone. Why then this story instead of the others? Well, man, that's a good question. And a lot of ways we could answer it. If I answered it like, I think, a good Jewish thinker, I would say that was the incredible history-altering experience of monotheism. Mm. Um, monotheism radically changed the world and and continues to be here. It's a it's a, and I I never understood it. Like I had studied this stuff for almost a decade before it finally clicked. I kept hearing that I was like, yeah yeah yeah, the monotheism thing I get. But I didn't get it, and and one day it dawned on me why that was so significant and so important. Because if you live in a polytheistic world, you are simply a third party. Like the mm. gods are doing their thing, but you're kind of... And so all these other narratives explain the chaos of the world, 
by just talking about the interactions of the gods and how you're going to make it. Like you're going to appease this god or do that thing or jump through these hoops, mm -hmm. but the gods are all there. The world's always going to be chaotic. It's kind of above you and beyond you, but here's how you can navigate this story and this narrative that you live in to be a part of. If it's monotheism, how do you explain chaos? Um, and all of a sudden you have a narrative that says, well, the, the only option is that this God has to have a relationship. If it's monotheism, that God has to have an intimate personal relationship with creation. Um, and that story, well, that I can no longer be a bystander. Mm -hmm. I can no longer create idols that just kind of prop up the narrative that I've created to make sense out of everything I now have to reckon with, well, oh, this God, who is this God? And this, and, and, and instead of saying, instead of being like the craziest horror story in the world, which is what it could have been, like there's one God, he has a relationship with creation and he's pissed. Like that, that could have been the narrative, right? In fact, I would suggest that's the only one that makes like the most sense and would follow the evolutionary trajectory of, Obviously, the gods are angry. Obviously. Mm. Have you seen the world? Mm. Obviously, they're angry. And this story says, no, 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 no. I mean, this story says God's in love with his creation. And I mean, that that story has some staying power. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of biased. I think it has staying power because it's true. Mm -hmm. But I also believe it has staying power because it's compelling. It's captivating. It gets to the roots of things that that nothing else really does. Uh, when I have to lean into this relationship, that is pretty much impossible to understand at times, but I got to lean in and I got to trust and I got to figure out, do I really believe this world is fundamentally good or I believe this whole world is fundamentally falling apart? What do I really believe is true? That'll do something. Where you believe this story is headed will change how you live in it today. Um, so where you, where you believe the story begins and where you believe the story ends is everything. Um, oh goodness. And, and that, I think that's the, I think that's the reason this story, because it started in a completely different place and it claimed that the, that the arc of the universe was going in a different direction. And I, I mean, you, you have a podcast called in search of hope. Hope is the, hope was the defining characteristic of this narrative. Wow. It was not despair. It was hope that, wow. that actually there's something better than what you've been handed. It's a better essence. It's a better story. It's a better direction. It's a better finishing line. Um, and people went, well, like people have often asked me if, if this whole thing were like, why do you follow? Do you follow this? Because I follow because it's absolutely the best story I've ever heard. It's the most captivating thing. It's the best way to live. I haven't found another version of living that's better than resurrection, hope, a belief that life wins, not death. Oof. I mean, at that that this story is just wild in that regard. That this whole thing is headed towards the way that it ought to be. If that's true, I can lay my life down on behalf of other people. Yeah. Marty, you're getting me emotional here, man. That's not what <laughs> this is not what I thought we'd be we'd be doing here. I feel like that I think you've just summed up everything i probably wanted to do on the podcast and this is probably our last episode now because like, how do you how do you when you go after that like when you said 
if your outlook is that the world is fundamentally good or it's fundamentally bad, th- that will change how you live every day. That is, that, it seems so simple, but it's so major. It's so major. Man, you threw off my next question. Okay, all right, okay, cool. So, I see a good, compelling reason why to be interested in this Bible, right? But we then start seeing the maybe understanding of it continue. It started changing, you know, um, like you even talked about the, uh, the, the councils, which is, is that different from the Council of Nicaea? So Council of Nicaea would be the, generally the first of the seven ecumenical or the four main ecumenical councils. Yeah. Well, let's Same. let people know what that is. People, uh, namely me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, for I have a friend who is going to be yeah. here. Um, so it after uh, when when Constantine beat, which is a huge story, but when Constantine converts to Christianity for whatever reasons, good, bad, or indifferent, um, the empire shifts. The political power dynamics shift. The empire becomes Christians and becomes Christian, and now it's Christendom, now that we're no longer running for our lives and being killed by Rome and hunted down by Rome, now we start arguing about everything. So very, very early in our uh, theological history, we start having meetings, these councils, where we gather all the Christian leaders, the spiritual leaders, the shepherds, the bishops, we get them together. Those councils are almost always called by the emperor. Um, The first one was called by Emperor Constantine because you had all this disagreement about mm-hmm. who Jesus was. Was he God? Mm-hmm. Was he man? Was he both? Was that, how does that work? Oh. And so, and, and if Christianity devolves into a bunch of splintering opinions, well, there's no imperial power in that. Mm. And so the empire needs to get the rule book ironed out. And so they have all these councils. And the first one is Council of Nicaea. Um, and, and then they have a, um, the Council of Constantinople. They have the Council of Ephesus is number three. That was the one we were just talking about a moment ago. Uh, Council of Chalcedon uh, after that. And these are the things that kind of define uh, what we typically refer to as orthodoxy, Western orthodoxy. Mm. Is the decisions that those councils made, the early Christians made when they got together and said, this is, this is true. The whole concept of Trinity, um, all that stuff comes out of those councils. You know, and that's so interesting. I was talking to my wife about that. And, you know, a lot of decisions that were made then, you know, essentially formulate the way a lot of us practice today, where like some people would say, um, does the, when you have communion, it, does it really change into the body and blood of Jesus or is it still bread and wine or is it a Trinity or is it, you know, I mean, who, who can explain the Trinity? So do you think um, people should really go back and investigate the decisions that were made there in order to make decisions for themselves? Uh, it's not, it's never a bad, uh, it's never ever a bad decision to research or, or go look at and ask questions about anything, even though that won't make lots of people very nervous. Um, mm. it's never a bad thing. I never want to tell anybody like, no, 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 you shouldn't waste your time doing that. Um, now if I had a certain, a finite amount of units, I wouldn't, in my opinion, spin them on the finer nuances of Western theology. I would want to go spend them on getting the text in me, understanding the way of Jesus. Like, like 
let me just briefly riff on the on the Trinity, and I'll make this real brief so I don't get in trouble. There's all kinds of things that I I can't. Very few Christians actually are even remotely equipped to discuss the Trinity and not very quickly venture into what would be defined as heresy according to Western Orthodoxy. Like the language you use is so has to be so precisely perfect because getting the slightest adjective wrong. Mm screws up Trinitarian orthodoxy. I have an appreciation for that, but I can never, like, man, I have a, and what I want to be immersed in is the word. Well, I can tell you what the word says, that the fullness of God chose to dwell in Jesus, was pleased mm. to dwell. I, don't, I can't explain that in a way that's going to satisfy a Westerner, but I can go like, okay, when the early apostles wrote about this, they were insistent on when they were with Jesus, they were with something far more than just a Jewish rabbi. When I read the teachings of Jesus, he's claiming to be Torah. Now, obviously, he's not a book, so what does that mean? He's claiming in some places, and not the typical places that Western Christians usually think. I'm talking some Jewish teachings. He's claiming to be God. He's he's equating himself to those realities, those Trinitarian realities that I, I got I to gotta grapple with. Um, I can't explain that theologically in a package that's going to satisfy any Western theologian, mm. but I can like be like, okay, there are things in the, but I want to lean more towards mystery and go, okay, but like, I love people that want to search for the historical Jesus and talk about this Jewish rabbi in the first, I'm one of them, Jewish rabbi walking around in the first century and he sweated and he bled and he, he was like a human being and he pooped and, and they're like, there's a person, like there's a person. And at the same time, sometimes when I get too far or I'm surrounded by too many other people like that, uh, I just want to be like, okay, but he was also like so much more than just a Jewish rabbi. Um, so, so I don't know. I don't, yes, to your question, whatever it was about examining orthodoxy. <laughs> But I want to know my Bible more, and I don't want to work. I think we've worked so hard at explaining our Bible mm. and so little at knowing it, like yada knowing it. Like I want his words in my heart so that they come in and out of me, whether I even like can explain every fine little theological nuance I could ever come up with or not. We've gotten so good at that, systematic theology, ecumenical orthodoxy, which is all important. All those things are important. I, man, I'm probably going to spend the rest of my life just trying to get his words inside of me and just wondering in awe at the power that's packed into those words. So I'll be good. If other people want to study the, that's great. And when, when we went through session five in the podcast, it was like 11 episodes. And I was like real clear, this is not my area of expertise. Let's do a flyby. Yeah, and we'll just call it good at the end of that. I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, and we'll all just move on. But the Bible is where I want to live. Mm, so, so essentially, it's it would be more important, or that it'd be a better idea just to get the word inside you instead of kind of trying to dice up the uh, the, the nuances of you know where we meet, when we meet, or is that is that is that a yeah, I think that'd be fair. And there's a time and a place for those other detailed conversations. And I think we know. We know what those times and places are. And that's good. And we shouldn't run from those. We should lean into those too when it's time to discuss about how we 
what our expression of faith looks like and what our traditions do. But the thing that I'm convic- I'm convicted of, I'm convinced of, wholly convinced is that there's power in the Word of God that is totally, completely absent, 100% absent from our statements of faith, from our doctrinal creeds, from which are all super important, but they're powerless in terms of like supernatural. But God's words, that those words He says in Isaiah never come back void. They Mm. always accomplish the purpose and the desire for which He sent it. Which means I can turn His words loose, and He'll do things with them that even my brain, my preparation, my whatever could never do. But that also is going to mean I'm going to have to have His words in me. So that they can come out of me. So that's where I want to. I want to live. I want to live in that space because those words can do all kinds of things. Those words have done all kinds of. They can do. They can talk about history. They can talk about mystery. They can speak into suffering. Mm. They can speak truth to power. They can. Those words. They do incredible stuff. My words. Uh, yeah, I mean, they can be, they can be awesome, but they ain't got, they ain't got nothing on, on those words. So I want those words to, to be on my lips. Yeah. You know, I can definitely agree to that. Cause I, I was listening to the, um, one of the, the episodes where you were covering David's Psalms and, um, how I was doing it. I was just like reading the, uh, reading the actual book and then listen to the podcast is like kind of, you know, like a study guide, you know, um, I started like, yeah, I was going through Psalms and I had the idea of skipping it because, you know, I just didn't do well with wisdom literature. I like just give, give me the the story. Tell me the story. But as I was going through it, I was like, my goodness, this really speaks to elements of my heart of just like like the suffering and calling out to God, wanting God to break the teeth of your enemies, you know, and um. I remember you spoke about how sometimes like certain songs that we do sing now don't really speak to people suffering in the moment, but the Psalms do, you know, and it was kind of in that moment where I was like, man, I can't believe I was about to miss all of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. The Psalms are one of my least favorite sections of, I'm not a feeler. I'm a thinker. Um, I I love music and yet that's just not a part of scripture that I um but you're absolutely right and and even those corners of scripture will always sneak up and surprise us. When I um when I would tell people about you, they would say, "Wait, he's Jewish but he believes in Jesus." I'd say, "Yeah." But they'd still ask me again. And so Let's talk about that because I know a lot of my Jewish friends, they uh, don't believe that he was a Messiah, still waiting for the Messiah, and that he was uh, a prophet, a teacher, a, a rabbi, a good guy, but not the guy. How did you then become a Jewish Christian, if that's even a thing? Right. And my, yeah, my story's a little backwards because I wasn't raised in my Jewish heritage, which would have mm. made a massive difference. Um, I, I mean, I have no idea how, what that would have looked like that. My story is simply mine as is every single one of our stories, but I was raised in a, in a fundamentalist evangelical Christian home. I have Jewish heritage on my father's side. I was aware of it. Um, and, uh, but I, 
Uh, I was raised in that t- that typical evangelical understanding of well, Jesus came, so it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. Like we all got rid of all that stuff, um, and uh, and and that I mean that just made sense according to Christian theology that I was being taught, and I went to Bible college and. And that Christian theology just wasn't working for me, and God led me on this journey of contextual learning and um, like learning Second Temple Judaism, uh, all kinds of stuff. I got I got to follow Ray Vanderlaan to mm. Israel and then Turkey uh, for some different trips, and that was just radically eye opening. One of the things that he introduced to me was um, what what we now call New Perspective on Paul's scholarship. Uh, kind of started for the founding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we found those Dead Sea Scrolls, and we all love to talk about the apologetics and how pure mm-hmm. the text was, which is awesome. But we found out a lot of other things, too. Like, the whole world of scholarship just got put on steroids and then some. And 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 we've just been learning so much. And and the, the Dead Sea Scrolls go back and forth between Israel and and the Arab nations. And and for scholarship, and so they spend, I believe it's 10 years, might be eight years, I can't remember, I think it's a decade in each side, and so when they're on your side, you just do as wow. much research as you can, and then when they go to the other side, then you start like kind of like, okay, parsing all that out and doing all, you know, and part of what we discovered is that there were things about Second Temple Judaism that we just, um, we were unaware of, and, and when we became aware of it, we went, oh gosh, I think we've been reading Paul wrong for 1,800 years, which sounds really crazy and daunting. It's not as bad <laughs> as it sounds, but it was it was like, oh, okay. Cause, and a lot of us, we a lot of people picked up on it anyway, even without that scholarship. A lot of people picked up on what we mm-hmm. would call inconsistencies. Okay, so if we all got rid of the law... Why is Paul taking a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts and having to go, like, why is it pretty relatively clear that Peter's mm-hmm. eating kosher? Why, why, there's all this, why are they mm-hmm. still meeting in the temple? Why, why is there, I thought we got rid of all that, like, there were enough indicators, even without recent scholarship, that it gave rise to what many call Messianic Judaism. Um, mm-hmm. And really, they were ahead of their day. Um and and yet, there's probably some pieces that still, in large, uh, in large circles, are probably missing. Uh, that'd be too general of a statement. I don't typically associate with Messianic Judaism just because we read our Bibles so differently. But they were noticing things that were in the Bible um, and changing their theology accordingly. What New Perspective on Paul did was it it tied up some of those loose ends. Yeah, we we realized that. Well, I'm really getting deep in the weeds here. I'll try to I'll try to get out. Um, we realized that what uh, what Paul is addressing when he's when he's talking about the works of the law, we found a Dead Sea Scroll called the Mixat Maaseha Torah, which is the works of the law in Hebrew or Ergunamu in Greek. Uh, the works of the law are the parts of the law that make you Jewish. We didn't really realize that was how they saw it in that day. So when Paul is talking about the works of the law, what he's really addressing is this conversation about justification, about whether or not you're justified by getting circumcised, by eating kosher, by and then when you when you understand some of those key pieces fall into place, you realize what your New Testament is doing is dealing with all these Gentiles that are flooding into the church. And what they're trying to figure out is, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to eat kosher? Do they have to wear tassels? Do they have to follow Torah? Do they have to become Jewish? And the and the and the decision is very clearly mm-hmm. no in the scripture. 
But what's never up for debate is that whether Jews would be Jews. Well, the Jews are, of course, are going to be Jews. The scandal of your New Testament is that the Gentiles get to be full-fledged kids, <laughs> yeah. not not distant cousins, not sitting in the balcony, but full-fledged adopted brothers and sisters of Abraham purely because they're willing to trust in the promises of God. That's still scandalous to Jewish thought today. But So I, I learned all that in Turkey. Uh, and I, I was actually teaching that. Uh, I had been teaching that for some time. Um, because when you start teaching contextual biblical stuff, everybody wants to become Jewish. Like everybody's like, oh, I want to I wanna eat kosher. I want to do festivals. I want to, and you're like, A, no, you don't. <laughs> B, uh, no, like you can't, like if you do that, Paul says to the Galatians, mm. you ruin the gospel because the gospel is this announcement of both yeah. groups coming together. If you just all become Jewish, then you you actually mess up the thing that we're doing in the New Testament gospel. So so I was on that bus. Like I was teaching that and I was going back home saying we can't become Jewish. And then on one of my last trip with Ray, uh, I remember walking around the corner of the airport and he looked at me and I'd grown my beard out. It was a lot darker back then. But I had just grown my beard out to be stupid. And he looked at me and he went, oh my goodness, you're Jewish. And I went, that's a weird thing to say to somebody. And he grabbed he grabbed my name tag and he said, has your name always been spelled that way? And I said, well, yeah, since we have my dad's genealogical records back to 936 AD. I said, it's been spelled that way. It comes out of Western Europe. We lived in Cornwall, England for 800 years. He said, well, we've never seen that name come out of Western Europe and have it not be Jewish. And I was like, the more you yeah. know, like, who cares? I don't get it. Um, and And then... Every time he would talk about Jews for the first few days of the trips, he would <laughs> across the group. If you were to talk to a Jew today, what are, you, what are you talking about? And then somebody called me his semi-Jewish friend, and Ray oh. lost his mind. Ray called everybody over. He said, I don't want anybody to ever Whoa. call him that again. If you're Jewish, you're Jewish, and there's nothing you can do about it. And if you're not, you're not, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I, and I, like all these like things started falling into place in my head. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And Ray was beautiful. He was like, listen, I think in Jesus, you have all the freedom in the world. I just know what you teach. And one day you're going to have a student that pays attention and they're going to say, if that's what you believe, why don't you eat kosher? And you just need to know what you're going to say. I think in Jesus, you can do whatever you want, but you just need to know how you're going to answer that question. And I went home and had an awkward (laughs) conversation with my wife. And I let her, we prayed about it for about a year and I wanted her to kind of make her decision and she said, I think we should do this. And so we reclaimed our Jewish heritage and started living in a way that is consistent with what we understand. I read my Bible more like an Orthodox Jew than I just believe that Jesus. And I try to get hung up on the Messiah thing. It's not that I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's just that Messiah has come with so much baggage over the years and still does today. If you're watching people dance in the temple courts, it's like so as the as the mosque on the Temple Mount burns. No, help me I understand. Those video clips yet? Oh my goodness! So so there is all these oh, tensions yeah. right oh, now in okay. Palestine, and the mosque and the mosque in Jerusalem on, on oh. the Temple Mount got on fire, and there the the Western Wall is full of dancing uh, Orthodox, probably Zionistic Orthodox that are celebrating the burning of a. Mosque. It's just so disturbing and frustrating. Oh. Um, so so messianic stuff can get really loaded really quickly. We've slaughtered some 10 and a half million Jews in the name of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. So for me, it's just like, 
I just think Jesus was the best. I think Jesus was who he said he was. And I think Jesus is the best version of humanity, the best fulfillment of Torah. Um, so I read my Bible more like an Orthodox Jew that thinks yes to Jesus, no to the way we executed Jesus for the next sure. 2,000 years, but yes to Jesus himself. And that's the most difficult thing in a Jewish conversation is understandably so Jews can't see Jesus in a vacuum. Jews only see Jesus through the last 1,800 years of church history, which has been anything but Jesus-y. Um, it's been very, very dark and full of all kinds of disgusting things done yeah. in his name to them. So it's impossible for them to pull those things wow. apart. Um, so the, anyway, that's a really weird and long way to answer that question, but that's kind of how my Judaism fits. It kind of doesn't. I'm never really at home because Jews wouldn't, Orthodox Jews would not affirm mm, my yeah. Judaism. Um Christians think I'm weird, so no matter where I'm at, it's kind of like there's there's really not really, and yet I'm built yeah. for that. I'm I'm fine. Uh, I don't I don't cry <laughs> myself to sleep at night, but um, it's it's kind of a weird it's a weird yeah. space to live in. Um, but that's what I that's what our families felt called to is to try to live in these Gentile evangelical spaces and bring a better reading of the Bible. Wow. Okay, okay, we're gonna pause it right here. And we're going to allow everyone to just process everything that Marty just dropped on us. And it's been heat. And it takes some processing. And if you're anything like me, you're reaching your mental peak of the ability to sit in one space and just kind of listen to one thing. So we're going to pause it right here. Like I said, we'll post the rest of this episode. I mean, yo, Marty goes into some more heat. Yo, it's serious. So uh, what you can do in the meantime... Go check out uh, at Mr. Ugo Eze on Instagram where we're going to drop some visuals that go along with this pod episode. Man, it's all good stuff. All right. See you soon.